It is now commonly accepted that the first radio broadcast in history happened on Christmas Eve night, 1906, when Canadian inventor Reginald Fresedon used an alternator transmitter he'd developed to beam a short program of music from Brant Rock, Massachusetts, for an audience of mostly shipboard radio operators working along the Atlantic Ocean. The program had been publicized well in advance and was heard as far down as Norfolk, Virginia, and it almost went off without a hitch. Fresenden began with a short introduction, followed by Handel's Largo on phonograph. However, immediately before his assistant was supposed to speak, he was gripped with fear and nervousness and froze. But with a great presence of mind, Fesenden came to the rescue. He picked up his violin and began playing Oh Holy Night. The famous hymn, written by two French socialists, was adapted to English in 1855 and became a popular hymn in the northern United States because of the third verse which proclaims, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. These words resonated with the abolitionists in the north and led to the tradition of singing this hymn in churches on Christmas Eve. And you may have noticed this Advent season that all the titles of the sermons that we've had have come from the lyrics to O Holy Night, A Thrill of Hope, His Gospel is Peace, and now Sweet Hymns of Joy. In fact, our theme, as Tara mentioned this morning for Advent, derives from this song as well, How Does a Weary World Rejoice? If there ever was a year to ask that question, this is the year. Weary does not seem to begin to describe what many are feeling. Exhausted, fatigued, drained, bushed, wore out, running on empty, burning the candle at both ends. My grandfather used to own a horse farm and over the years my family developed their own phrase for being tired. They say, I've been rode hard and put away wet. And I've tried to tell my family that they can't use that unless people know they're talking about horses. But they don't seem to understand. We are weary people living in a weary world. And as I read the news and look at all the war and the violence going on in our cities and in our world, the crisis we've created in the environment, Christian nationalism that seems to dominate our politics, and a presidential election right around the corner again, from where I'm sitting, it feels like there's not going to be any rest for the weary. We're almost at the end of 2023, and all the things that have been making us weary all year look like they're still going to be here with us in 2024. Patriarchy will still be here in 2024. Racism will still be here in 24. Homophobia will still be here. Poverty will still be here. Ableism will still be here. Oppression will still be here. Mass incarceration will still be here. Moms of Liberty will still be here. Gun violence will still be here. Environmental catastrophe will still be here. The Supreme Court will still be here. The House of Representatives will still be here in 24. War in Russia and Ukraine and Palestine and Israel and many places in Africa will still likely be here in 24. 
lust for power and greed will still be here in 2024. Consumerism, individualism, isolation, they will all still be here in 2024. A housing crisis, a healthcare crisis, unprecedented wealth inequality, hatred, pettiness, apathy, and indifference. They will all still be here with us in 2024. And I'm tired of it. I'm weary of it. And if I'm tired, then you know that people living at the intersection of multiple forms of oppression are truly tired, bone tired. Like Fannie Lou Hamer said, so many folks in our community are sick and tired of being sick and tired. So maybe the question is not, how does a weary world rejoice, but can, can a weary world rejoice? Can people living in a weary world find joy? Well, our story this morning from the Gospel of Luke describes the encounter of two weary women living in a weary world, a patriarchal world, a world where Roman political and military rule over Israel had not only compounded economic exploitation, but always, as it does, intensified patriarchal domination. Authorities that were responsible in those days for maintaining the boundaries of society had also, as they always do, sharpened and intensified their concern with the ordinances governing the proper behavior of women for the sake of social control. Sound familiar? In the first century world, women found themselves on the lowest rung of the social ladder and therefore received the brunt of the pressures passed down the chain of oppression. Jewish men who were experiencing daily humiliation under the effects of Roman rule and occupation would have, as often happens, passed down their anger and frustration to the women in their lives, often in violent and demeaning ways. As it happens in oppressed communities, the violence that men experience from the daily humiliations of oppression tend to turn in on themselves toward the people that they're closest to, who are the most vulnerable. It was exhausting to be a woman living in the first century, compounding the weariness that comes from living as a woman in a patriarchal world. Elizabeth, we are told, was getting on in years, according to her husband, Zechariah, that is. Elizabeth was getting on in years. Zechariah's astonished response to the angel Gabriel was concerned about their advanced age more than anything. Like Sarah and Abraham before them, they'd likely grown tired of trying to conceive, trying to pray, tired of praying for that miracle that never came, tired of answering questions from family about why they didn't have children, tired of arguing about why God hadn't blessed them, tired of carrying around that unfulfilled longing in a world that expected women to have children and demean them if they didn't. Elizabeth was tired, weary exhausted. Mary, on the other hand, was tired for a different reason. She was tired of being poor, tired of being a peasant, tired of living like a slave in an occupied land, tired of eking out a living in a sparse environment, tired of surviving hand to mouth, tired of struggling to get by, tired of the anxiety of not knowing where her next meal was going to come from, tired of not having enough nourishment to sustain her, 
And because our story begins with Mary taking a 100-mile journey on foot while pregnant to see her relative Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea, we know that Mary was also bone-tired from her travels, stumbling through the door with her luggage ready to pass out on the floor. We all know what it feels like to be that tired, to be mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically weary to the bone. There's even a sound, have you noticed, that comes out of our bodies when we're that tired and we sit down finally. It's like a oomph sound. It's the groan of exhaustion. Some call it the sigh of the weary, like in the famous folk tune, hard times come again no more. But what neither of these women knew was that Mary was not traveling alone from Nazareth. The Holy Spirit was traveling with her on the road, and when Mary opened the door, the Spirit rushed in with her. People didn't say hello in those days. They said shalom. And so when Mary opened the door and said shalom, the Spirit burst in and grabbed a hold of Elizabeth and filled her and the child in her womb with joy. Joy sprang up from inside her body, inside her womb, leapt up from her soul, bounced up in her heart, danced out of her body in song. It was so much joy, she could not contain it, and she started shouting out with a loud cry, it says in Luke. The Spirit got a hold of her, and she started singing with exclamation. She started praising God and blessing Mary and even blessing herself. A weary woman living in a weary world was overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit and burst forth in song with sweet hymns of joy. So I have a question. Why why do we read this story like it was quiet and calm in Elizabeth's house that day? There was nothing quiet or calm about it. We've got exclamations and loud cries, leaping babies and prophesying women. When that door was open, the spirit rushed in Elizabeth's house like it was Pentecost in the hill country of Judea. And it filled Elizabeth and it filled Mary with surprising joy. A song also then burst forth from Mary's chest, magnifying the Lord, rejoicing in her Savior, echoing Elizabeth's exclamation, announcing her own blessing as well. Two weary women living in a weary world, found themselves filled with the Spirit, singing sweet hymns of joy and blessing themselves. Can weary people living in a weary world find joy? The Gospel of Luke exclaims, yes. Mary and Elizabeth exclaim, yes. The Holy Spirit exclaims, yes. The Christmas story says, yes. The good news is yes. But do we believe it? Do we really believe we can have joy, even if we're living as weary people in a weary world? Part of our problem is we often live as if our weariness and our grief have the power to eradicate our joy. We imagine that joy and sorrow are opposing forces. We think that joy can't exist in the same space with loss and lament. But we only live this way because we've confused joy with the emotion of happiness or the experience of pleasure. But happiness and pleasure 
are occasional and fleeting. Joy is something that is always present and always available to us because joy transcends all emotions and the situations and circumstances of our lives. Not only do we have the power to remain in joy amid our griefs and our losses, it turns out joy cannot exist apart from sorrow. Joy and sorrow are partners who dance together inside all of us all the time. In his book, Inciting Joy, poet Ross Gay writes, among the most beautiful things I've ever heard anyone say came from a student who once said, what if we joined our wildernesses together? He writes, our bodies carry a wilderness, an unexpected territory where yours and mine might meet somewhere, somehow, and even join. And what if the wilderness inside of all of us is our sorrow or the intolerable we experience in life? He said, it often astonishes me that sometimes every person I know, regardless of everything going on, lives with some kind of profound personal sorrow. A brother addicted, a mother murdered, dad died in surgery, rejected by their family, cancer came back, not to mention the existential sorrow that we are all afflicted with, which is that we and what we truly love will one day die. Is this sorrow, he says, the great wilderness inside of us, the true wild? And if it is, can we join them, your wild to my wild? What if we joined our sorrows together? He writes, I'm saying, what if that is joy? Ross goes on to say, what if what happens is that joy is not separate from pain? What if joy and pain are fundamentally tangled up with each other? Or even more to the point, what if joy is not only tangled up with pain or suffering or sorrow, but joy is what emerges from how we care for each other through those things? What if joy, instead of being a refuge or relief from heartbreak, is what blooms from within us as we help each other to carry our heartbreaks? Then not only does joy not exist absent from sorrow, but it actually requires sorrow to exist. He writes, the way I think of joy is, is that it is what is luminous about us when we're helping each other, when we're holding each other through our sorrows. In trying to articulate what joy is, it occurred to me, he writes, that joy is the mostly invisible, the underground union between us, which is, among other things, the great fact of our life and the lives of everything that we love that is going away. We might call it sorrow, but we also might call it a union, one that once we begin to notice it, once we bring it into the light, might become flower and food, might be joy. Witnessing and experiencing our connection to one another is what incites joy. If Ross Gay is right, then it's no wonder that joy burst forth in Elizabeth and Mary when the door was open and the spirit blew in because they immediately experienced their profound connection to one another as humans, as Judeans, as women, as future mothers. They immediately experienced their profound connection with God and the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to their ancestors. They immediately experienced their profound connection to God's plan for the salvation and liberation of the world. And they also, did you notice, experienced a profound connection with their own weary souls as they both began to bless themselves 
to bless themselves in a world that had not blessed them. Joy is the experience of profound connection. Connection with ourselves, with each other, with God, with creation, with the world. A world that is often trying to encourage us to believe in the lie of separation, alienation, independence, individualism. But joy is the experience of having all of those lives ripped away. The removing of the evil of alienation from our thoughts. Having the lie of separation fall like scales from our eyes and allowing the idol of individualism to be ripped out of our hearts. We are not alone. We are not independent, it turns out. We are dependent, rational animals. We are not self-made or self-sustained. We are connected to one another, to God, to ourselves, to creation, in that inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Part of what it means to live in joy is to be people who practice our connection to each other in a culture of disconnection. People who practice our dependence on each other in a culture of independence. People who practice community with each other in a culture of individualism and who practice relationships in a culture of alienation. There are schools of philosophy out there, Frankfurt School to be one, that claims that no joy is possible in a world marked by capitalism. And as scholar Achille Membe notes, European colonizers often stereotype black Africans as simplistic and primitive captives to the empire of joy. And there are writers and scholars and talking heads who are trying to tell us that joy is either not possible in a weary world and that joy is simplistic, the simplistic empire of weary and oppressed people. But that's not what God has to say about joy. That's not the biblical picture or Mary's description of the joy of the kingdom. In the Magnificat, it's clear. We're all destined, if we follow God's way, to become captives to the empire of joy. So we have to ask ourselves, this morning, this Advent, who taught you that you weren't worthy of joy? Who told you you weren't worthy of joy? What's that voice? Who's that voice inside your head that said, you're not allowed to have joy. You don't deserve joy. You're not good enough for joy. You don't have time for joy. And joy is not possible in this life. What voice is that? Sometimes that voice comes from our parents, our family. Sometimes it comes from people we love, our spouse. Sometimes it comes from the work we do. It comes from our jobs, our bosses. Sometimes it just comes from the world in general. Sometimes it's even our own voice inside us telling us we can't have joy. But whoever it is or whatever that voice is, it's time for us to tell it to shut up. Shut up. My daughter Lucy was recently playing in a basketball game and one of the girls on the other team was trash talking her. And she just said, shut up. That's all you got to say. And then you got to shut them up with your playing, right? (laughs) Just shut up. Shut up that voice inside your head that says you can't have joy. 
Every structure of power, every force of domination, every system of oppression was trying to tell Elizabeth and Mary they could not have joy. Roman occupation, economic deprivation, patriarchal subjugation, bearing down on their bodies, and yet the Spirit blew in and filled them with exactly what the world said they couldn't have, joy. And that joy spilled over into song, song that moved to acknowledge their blessings, the blessings in the world, the blessings in their own life, and to proclaim prophetically the advent of a whole new world of justice and peace that was coming. Mary saying, God has shown me the strength of their arms, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the powerful from their thrones, lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty. The song was not just a declaration of what God was doing in Mary's life, but God's preferential option for the poor throughout Scripture. That became the mission statement for her son Jesus and the platform of the upside-down kingdom that he was coming to embody. Joy is a practice of survival and an act of resistance. Reaching for joy, being joyful, can be emancipatory and liberative. It has the potential for deeply meaningful political agency. Sharing joy is the key resource in the collective struggle for freedom from all the forces of death and separation in our world. There is joy to be found both in the collective struggle for social transformation and in claiming the validity and importance of individual lives that are lived joyfully. There's joy to be found in the striving together for a better future for all God's people in the world. We must have the stubbornness to seek joy and to hold joy even in the ruthless furnace of this weary world. The intersectional poet and activist Audre Lorde wrote a lot about the revolutionary power of joy. She would often speak about the integral role that joy played in the movements she participated in for peace and justice and liberation, and she described the joy of living as one of our most potent weapons in that struggle. And then later when she was diagnosed with cancer, Lord wrote, the sharing of joy, whether physical, emotional, psychic, or intellectual, forms a bridge between people, which can be the basis for understanding much of what is not shared between them and lessens the threat of their difference. Once we recognize what it is that we're feeling, once we recognize that we can feel deeply, love deeply, feel joy deeply, then we will demand, demand that all parts of our lives produce that kind of joy. Our brightest tomorrow, she wrote, belongs to those who conceive of it as belonging to everyone, who are willing to give our best selves to it and to do so with joy. Friends, all the things that make us weary people living in a weary world aren't going away anytime soon. But the good news is we can still live with joy. All our sorrows and disappointments and losses and griefs aren't going away anytime soon. But the good news is that weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes when we share our sorrows with each other because joy is connection. Joy is relationship. Joy is the collective resistance to the forces of death and evil and separation. Joy is scattering the proud and taking down the powerful and lifting up the lowly and filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. Joy is sharing our lives together and working for justice and striving to make the world more like the kingdom of God. And no matter what is going on in our lives and in our world, 
Even if we are weary people living in a weary world, we can still rejoice because God is with us and joy is always present. We can still rejoice because like Mary and Elizabeth, we can open the door and let the Spirit blow into our lives with the full force of resounding joy. And when the Spirit comes in, don't be surprised if it causes you to sing sweet hymns of joy. Not just the ones we always hear this time of year, joyful, joyful, and joy to the world, but those underrated Christmas carols. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. And if the world didn't give it, mm, the world can't take it away. Amen. <laughs>